Welcome to Art for All, sponsored by Sketchbook School. As a thank you for joining us, I'd like to give you a free ebook and our monthly newsletter full of tips, recommendations, and other cool stuff. Just head over to sketchbookschool.com to claim your freebies and to learn more about our classes and workshops and our membership program. We believe that art is for everyone, and I hope our podcast inspires you to create and explore your own artistic journey. Thanks for listening. On with the show. Hi there, and welcome to Art for All. This is Danny Gregory. I am the founder of Sketchbook School. And every week on this podcast, I find a person who's a friend of mine or somebody who I'd like to have as a friend, and we just talk about creative matters, uh, about art, about art making, about being a creative person, and we go deep. It's so nice to have an opportunity to just have a sit-down chat with somebody for a good while and really think about ideas together and see where it goes. So it's generally not an interview show. It's really more of just a conversation. And I'm glad to have you along to join us and to to see what you think on the subject. So I always would love to hear from you. You can always write to me at danny at sketchbookschool.com and tell me what you think. Um, yeah, so today my guest is Beth Trembley. And Beth is a writer and she is uh, now um, a graphic novelist. She has been uh, a successful writer of mystery novels for a while. Um, but she's written recently written a graphic memoir, which is called Look Again, and she sent me an early version of it and asked me to to check it out, which I did, and I really loved it. She wrote it um, as a member of the um, as a, the sequential art workshop, which is run by my friend Tom Hart. We met Tom in an episode a few weeks ago, but she's really turned her interest in drawing, which began, frankly, at sketchbook school. She was an uh, an early sketchbook school student, um, and she's turned it into a way of talking about her art, her life, her, her experiences, and in this particular case, her experience with trauma. And she tells the story of, um, a a traumatic experience that she's going to go into more deeply as we chat, I'm sure. Um, and she's going to talk about how we experience trauma, but also how we re-experience trauma and how trauma turns into a story that we tell ourselves, which I certainly relate to and understand. And um, she's also going to talk about how Art and art making has helped her to work through that. At least I imagine she is. We'll see. See where this goes. But uh, I'm really interested to, to have a deep chat with Beth about this, about her book. And um, I'll put information about about Beth and about her, where you can get her book and what it's called. Again, look again. It's published by Street Noise Books. And it's just coming out kind of now. So it's available. And I think you'll learn if you if it's at all a subject that appeals to you or that resonates with you uh, and who hasn't had some form of trauma in our lives. Um, I think you'll find it of great value. So let's chat with Beth. So your book is coming out tomorrow, right? Yes. Yeah. That's exciting. 
Yeah, I'm I'm quite excited. I've I've done other books, but this is my first graphic book and it's the one I'm by far the most excited about. That's so, fantastic. Yeah. That is cool. I want to get a copy. I hope I can yes, see it, do. In, see it in, on paper as soon as possible. There it is. There it is. Excellent. <laughs> fantastic. Good. Well, thank so, you for blurbing it, by the way. Thank you. Oh, no, I'm honored. I'm honored. Um, so what I wanted to talk to you about is, I guess, the subject of your book, which is trauma in a way, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and just, I think what's so interesting about the way that you tell the story, and it feels really familiar to me, is is the experience of trauma as kind of a storytelling experience. Mm -hmm. It's it's kind of a story that we frame for ourselves when something happens and we try and find meaning and logic to kind of deal with panic and terror. Is that that what's going on, you think? Yeah, I I do think that's true. Um, I think... At its core, what trauma does is is dislodge you from the things, maybe the fictional ideas, but the ideas we all carry with us about how the world works and how we're fundamentally can keep ourselves safe in that world. And when those things shatter, um, our narrative shatters as well, we need to regain some of that stability, I think, as quickly as we can. And so we start to try to tell stories like we do about anything in our lives. And I think trauma is particularly problematic for that because of how it literally functions in the brain. Um, that, that the way trauma is processed in your brain actually divorces you from uh, your verbalization skills and it disrupts the concept of chronology. And so after a trauma, it actually is physically harder for us to talk about and tell stories about because the, the memory is stored in such a different way. So we struggle even more mightily to regroup and reframe when something is trauma, other than just say other memories. So why is that? Is it because your brain is, is sort of kicks into self-preservation mode and the neurochemicals that are kind of released are basically to get you the hell out of there? And so <laughs> your, your brain... I mean, we've all had that experience of time slowing, um, mm-hmm. which can be, but I guess that's kind of a different thing, right? Because in some ways, time uh, memories are blurred and fragmented, as you say, when right. trauma happens. Um, and um, there's wonderful materials out there that people can read to get the details on it. There's a great, actually, graphic book, a comic book called Trauma is Really Strange uh, by Stephen Haynes. That's very accessible, but also incredibly well-researched that explains how trauma works in the brain. But basically, you nailed it. I mean, the various chemicals turn on. They turn off the parts of your brain that right now don't really need to think about it because what we need to do is survive. And, and so it goes away from some of the more cerebral things like logic and processing um, cause and effect. And it just sort of says, what's happening now? What do we already know? It brings up all kinds of strange memories, um, almost on autopilot. You don't really have control over that. 
uh, as your brain is searching for solutions, searching for ways to get you out of there, just like you said, and keep you alive. And that, and can, are, yeah, I'm sorry. go ahead. Can finish your, finish your thought. Uh, that can result in a lot of bizarre things showing up in your head. Certainly did it for me um, that you think are actually happening or that later you can't explain why you did certain things or thought about certain things in the moment. That's your brain trying to keep you alive. And are we talking about specifically sort of traumatic incidents as opposed to, for instance, ongoing trauma, let's say, um, maybe I don't know what the definition of trauma is now to think about it. Is it, is it specifically, um, one kind of moment, an accident, uh, and some terrible thing that happens all of a sudden? Well, for me, um, that certainly was the case. It was one incident that scared me into believing I was going to potentially could lose my life in that moment. And I think different people define trauma in different ways. And certainly these days it gets used a lot in conversation in ways that um, are different than, you know, different people talk about it in different ways. For me, it's specifically about uh, an occurrence in which you uh, are facing what you perceive to be a threat to your survival and your system becomes overwhelmed. And so you're no longer thinking logically. And so the same event might traumatize one person and not traumatize another person. Um, And that can be part of what's interesting about even guilt later. Like why did something traumatize me, but it didn't traumatize other people? Maybe I shouldn't have reacted the way I did. Um, and, and in terms of your question about ongoing, um, I don't have any experience with that. I'm, I'm happy and lucky to say, I know there are people who do have, you know, who are in situations of say ongoing abuse or situations of, of war and so forth who have ongoing trauma. And, um, I, I just don't have a lot of familiarity with that, but again, that kind of return to being threatened constantly is is part of it i mean in a way you do because we all do because of the pandemic i mean the well, pandemic exactly. is the, right the pandemic was a traumatic event and um you know it's it's kind of faded from our memories in some, in some <laughs> regards but i was i was looking at a video of um of the kind of what was then a daily show that i had been doing on the internet at the very beginning, I was doing this daily show and, uh, somebody said this, somebody in the comments said this would be a great kind of, um, piece of history because it, it demonstrates how we were feeling at that time. So I was, yeah. so I, was like, I, thought, I thought that's interesting. And I went back and watched it and I thought, yeah, at the beginning of the pandemic, we all weren't sure whether the world was ending or hmm. everything was, this is going to keep going on. Was everybody going to die? Was, were we never going to go back to being normal again? I mean, we've kind of, we've kind of absorbed and, and, and gone beyond that, but we all had that experience. Very, uh, that's a really good point. Very true. And I should go back and look at my journals. I did something very similar for weeks and weeks. I, I drew and I wrote, and then I wrote down the, um, the count of the dead every day. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I can remember when it crossed a thousand in my state and, and being horrified by that. And then of course numbers just kept climbing. So that's a really good point. Yeah. Well, let's do, let's just 
share the story again. I mean, I've read, sure. read your book, so I know the story. But but um, for those people who are listening and don't know it yet, tell, just tell us what, what your version of the story is. Well, that you use the word version is a good... <laughs> I know. Good... I, I, as soon as I said it, I thought, well, is that what I wanted to say? But you know what I mean. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, what happened to me was I was walking my dogs in the woods, which I do virtually every day. And uh, in this particular spot, several times a week. And um, it was very early in the morning. And I was not very far, not even 100 yards into the woods away from my car when I um, found a dead body. And because of the situation of the of the scene, the position of the body and other elements in the scene, I became immediately convinced that I had interrupted a murder situation and that there was more than one perpetrator involved. Um, and and that just terrified me. And then I had a sequence of subsequent reactions. So what the book does is talk about how over the years, this happened in the late 1990s and I didn't write the book until, you know, I started in 2017. Um, how over those years I retold the story in multiple ways, uh, as I processed what had happened to me, um, worked through guilt and shame and what it turned out to be some blackouts where I didn't even know what had happened, but I didn't know, I didn't know what had happened. And, as more information became available to me over the years about a lot of things, my version would change. But what's I think particularly interesting is when I started to write this book, I had been telling the story for over 20 years and I had just started to think about learning to do storytelling in comics. And I thought, Oh, well, this will be an easy story to tell. I've told it for 20 years. This is what I'll do to cut my teeth on long-form comics. And I thought I had one version. I had no idea I had done this over the time. And I sat down to start writing the one version that I had in my head. And in the course of the drawing, I remembered more and more, not only about the incident, but about how I had told about the incident. And then I after several months realized I had multiple versions and they could not be um, collated. They conflicted. And then suddenly I had to figure out how to deal with that. So that's really what the book's about. All of that. Yeah. I mean, the book is a, it's like a kaleidoscope where you, or you think, you know, and then yeah. it turns out that you don't know it's something else. And then it continues. And now you're a mystery writer also, right? So yes. how, does, how does yes. that work? How does that work into this experience because I mean, well, presumably you've written about dead bodies before, right? That's what mystery writers do. So what was the, exactly. Did, well, but I hadn't <laughs> at the time at which this happened to me, I had not yet written my first mystery novel, but I had grown up reading, you know, the Bobsy twins and Nancy drew and all the Agatha Christie's and the Dorothy L Sayers. And, um, I actually had done my dissertation on Dorothy Sayers when I was finishing my graduate work. So I was immersed in mystery stories, television, fiction, my whole life. And so it truly was, I think, probably the main narrative structure through which I process everything. <laughs> and, and I can remember in the moment, um, 
after I found this person and, and it took me quite a while to find a phone, this was before so I had a cell phone anyway, as I was sitting on the porch waiting for the police to come, I was very angry with the world of mystery fiction because I had found this, this dead body and it had terrified me. And I, I just was so angry in that kind of moment that, you know, Jessica Fletcher had never run, uh, had been traumatized by this. And, you know, Miss Marple was just fine. And <laughs> why were all these, these, uh, amateur detectives, uh, so blase about it when they stumbled across dead bodies. And so I vowed sitting on that porch that day that if, and when I ever wrote my first mystery novel, my heroine was going to freak out. And so a couple of years later, when I did write my first mystery novel, I made her freak out. So, yeah, but I, I think, you know, the whole notion of assessing myself and my reaction, my interactions with the police um, what was going to make me look guilty, get me into trouble? How was I going to preserve my own innocence? A lot of that was filtered through the tropes of mystery fiction, which I had been buried in pretty much my whole life. So even though you're, even though you made that vow, you had that initial reaction, you yourself didn't really even know how you had reacted until you'd gone through this whole process. So that's, right. yeah, that is interesting. Layers upon exactly. layers. Yeah, I, I I think that most mystery writers have never experienced an actual mystery, so yeah, understandable. This, I guess think I guess murder mysteries aren't really about murder; they're really about something else. I mean, they're they're a form of entertainment. I think if it was about real actual death, it would be probably not fun to read on the beach. Exactly. I, I think mystery fiction is really about the restoration of order. Mm. I mean, right. It, it might, it's maybe about the pursuit of justice, but on a different sort of level, I think it's really about restoring order um, that has been disrupted by a violent crime, um, you know, from the, the sort of cozies of Agatha Christie to the more gritty kinds of things, maybe that are more violent or realistic and getting written today. It's still, I think, at its core about that. How do we put ourselves back together when our world has been disrupted by this violence? And in that sense, uh, I think the memoir is pursuing the same story. And in a way, you know, I don't know, I should think about this more. I wonder if I, I latched on to that genre, even as a small person, because, because that's kind of who I am and what I'm interested in. As things get disrupted, you know, how, how, are, how do we restore the order? How is justice pursued? Those are things I'm interested in and in other aspects of my life. So it's a thread, right? Right up from when I was a kid. So it's a need for control. Yeah, I guess maybe. Order. I mean, order, maybe there's a different thoughts, but um, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I think, I think, look, this may be a controversial thought, but I think things like religion are part of the same um, need that we have, right? To say this world in which we are vulnerable and minute actually has some kind of cosmic structure that takes us into account and things will be okay because there's, there is order. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Uh, th yes, I, I agree with that. And sometimes I think um, one of the hardest lessons I had to learn as a young adult many, many years ago was, and I don't know why in retrospect, it was such a surprise to me, but like, justice doesn't 
win all the time <laughs> or even much of the time. Right. And that was just a, when I was a young adult, that was a real hard lesson for me to learn. I like, I knew it intellectually, but I really hadn't experienced that. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's part of my it optimism, can, I guess. <laughs> I was going to say it can make you a cynic, but, um, I think another thing that you said earlier resonated with me, which is that in the process of drawing this, because just in case we haven't made it clear, this is a graphic novel. It's not really a novel, yes. but a graphic story um, in which you're telling the story, but you're drawing it simultaneously and, and redrawing it and drawing it in different ways. Um, talk to me a bit about that process of and why why you think that was revelatory. Well, at the time, I was simply experiencing that. What I know now is that what I experienced is actually a, you know, a thing that, that many people report having experienced, which is, um, I drew one drawing and it just, what came out of me, I wasn't planning on it. I was practicing drawing a variety of things as I was getting ready to start, you know, thinking about working in comics. And what I drew was the, the picture of the dead body. Um, I had never drawn it ever. Um, I had carried that image locked in my head as many people who, who suffer trauma do. They carry images, these fragmented images locked in their heads. And I looked at that thing and I could feel almost physically in my body, something shifting. I now know that what was happening was the sense of, I was creating myself almost as a witness. I was creating an experience where I could witness this thing. It was coming out of my head and into the world, maybe becoming more objective as a way to put it. So I could respond and react to it differently. I scared the crap out of myself, honestly, and I put it away and didn't look at it again for almost five months. Um, and then when I came back to it, I drew the moment before and the moment after, and I just kept sort of building out. And what happened was every time I drew a, the next picture, something else showed up in my head. And sometimes it was connected to the moment and sometimes it made utterly no sense at all, but I would draw it quickly. Um, and, and what people are, are finding, particularly with trauma and comics, uh, is this sense that the way traumatic memory structures in our head, all these fragments that, that don't seem to make sense, matches up with kind of the grammar, if you will, of comics and how comics work, right? If you think even of, of the comics everybody knows in the newspaper, kind of the traditional comic strip is three or four panels, right? And it's separated by these little spaces called gutters. And uh, if you think about how you read comics, um, the magic is that our, our brains put together this one image with the next image and then the next image and to form this narrative and the reader or the writer is doing all this work that happens between the images. Well, that's how trauma works. There's all these fragments and you have to figure out how you're going to situate them on the page to start to make sense. And, um, comics actually is being used now with, uh, trauma survivors, with veterans, um, women who've uh, suffered from sexual assault and violence to help them process their trauma. It's a very, very interesting thing. And what happens is you draw and more stuff shows up because you're accessing 
different parts of your memory that are particularly attached to trauma, the visual in particular. So yeah, I, um, I just had, it was an astonishing experience and I've talked to people. I had, I lead a graphic memoir group, um, that meets every other week or so live. And we met just yesterday and a bunch of us were talking about, um, this exact sense of you're working on a memoir, you're working in comics, you draw something and a memory shows up that, that you did not remember. And, and then the, the new challenge of having to process that memory and your, your feelings that are attached to it um, and so forth. It's, yeah. We had uh, <clears throat> Tom Hart, who, you know, yeah. and, um, he was on this podcast. Um, in fact, a couple weeks ago. So, I listened um, to it this morning. Yes. I listened to it. Yeah. And uh, it's funny because actually I'd said to him when we were talking about what we should talk about, I said, well, let's talk about uh, grief and loss. And he was like, let's talk about artificial intelligence. It's like, okay, that's <laughs> um, but one of the exercises that he had us do in a recent um, schedule school workshop was this way of telling a story where you tell a story in four frames and then you do the frames um, that, go between those frames or around those frames. And then you go back in and you say, okay, now I have 16 frames telling the story. Now let me decide to, to make other frames, the, the, the sequence. So in other words, the first four, then you have 16 and then you edit it back down to four and you may choose completely different ones. They may relate completely differently. The story may actually become less predictable and more interesting as you remember or find bits and pieces, but this idea, and I think this is true of so much of art is that you don't want to tell the viewer or show the viewer everything you want to leave a place for them in the story and, you, and, and that you can enter into it. And it might be as simple as doing a drawing and, you know, leaving out details or doing a drawing and leaving out an, an eye or something. Um, and then the viewer looks at it and then fills that in. I think that we're, and in this case, you were doing it to yourself. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yes. And, and as, as someone who spent most of my life working in prose, one of the challenges for me in changing to comics was to, to leave that space for the reader. I tend, I wanted to tend to write a lot, right. In the narrative boxes. And so that was a, a big challenge for me was to back off, let the pictures do more of the work because I wasn't used to that personally. And then also to just leave more space for the reader. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, I, I've experienced a f few things that I guess qualify as trauma and mm -hmm. I wrote, a, I wrote books about both of them and they were, I kind of did it very differently than, than you did. But um, when I think about the book that I wrote called a kiss before you go, which is about when my wife died, I, I, um, I, a lot of that was, uh, was stuff that I made while it was happening. So mm -hmm. the year of after her death and her death was like, was really sudden and, um, shocking. Um, and so I was kind of moved to record my experiences. Um, and that became like the only record really of that time that the, like I look back at that book sometimes I, I just, it seems like somebody else made it or, or is this somebody else lived it? I don't know. It just, uh, and I think to myself, okay, it's 12 years since that, those events. And 
I like to think in terms of how all my cells have been replaced. So, yes. You know, so I'm like a completely different set of cells than was around then because every seven years you get all new ones or something. And so I thought, well, it's almost like somebody else did live that. But I think when I look back on it, I was, and I was doing this in my daily journal, my sketch, my illustrated journal, trying to capture it for some future version of me or a future version yeah. of my son, I guess. But um, a lot of the things that I was describing were um, things that seemed like they would be forever, like they would never change or I would never incorporate them. Um, and that's part of the nature of grief, I think, is that grief is um, it's a really bizarre, bizarre experience. Uh, grief can hit you out of the blue and be just devastating. And then you just pick yourself up and you're perfectly fine. Uh, mm -hmm. You can't anticipate it. It can happen for no reason. It's completely a, a, like a physical, like being flattened kind of thing. It's very odd. It's very odd. I had a friend tell me once, and I'm not going to quote him perfectly, but uh, he said to me after my father died, he said, grief is a sniper. Mm. Um, that was the image he used. And, you know, Weeks will go by or months and you'll think you're fine. And then boom, out of the blue, just what you just said, it will flatten you. Yeah. 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 I mean, the analogy I what? used was I, I did, um, you know, the, uh, the Japanese woodcut of the giant tsunami, um, with mm -hmm. my hand floating in the water, because that's what it, it felt like, like a wave. It felt like a giant wave flattening me. And, uh, sniper is interesting, but, I think, I guess it's like a sniper in that a lot of times it would happen like a really nice day, sunny day, mm -hmm. walking, walking down the street and then suddenly mm -hmm. boom. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. I wanted to ask you actually, um, about that, that book. Um, I found, and I still find that when I'm in the middle of that kind of thing as something super negative, I'm, I'm sad. Or in the case of this, this event, I can't write about it. Um, I, and I've always felt badly about that. Like, I wish I could, but, um, I think I even mentioned it in the book that it was like, I just stopped writing in my journal the day it happened. And it was months before I could pick up writing about anything in my journal. And then I never talked about it ever in, mm. in a journal or anything. And I'm, I'm wondering just what you think about that. Like, um, and maybe it would be different now that I draw, um, but like, what do you think kept you able to write and process and deal with that on the page, even in the, those moments and weeks after? I think it's a good question. I th think there were a bunch of things that were going on. One was, um, I wanted that order. I mm -hmm. wanted to have a sense of, of structure. And I felt like I can, I can self analyze during it and that will somehow make it manageable. Oh yeah, this is what I'm going through. Oh yeah, that's what this is. Those kinds of things, even though it was pathetic and wrong a lot of the time. But um, then there were things that were, I kept thinking about my son who was 15 at the time that Patty died. And I kept thinking, um, I want to make a record for him. Even yeah. though honestly, he has, he has zero interest. He had his own experience of this. He doesn't need my experience of it, but I sort of felt like, well, I need to protect him by providing like this, the sanctioned version of this experience. Maybe that's what it was. <laughs> I think another part of it was that it was very connected to 
Annie, and I felt her presence a lot throughout this experience. And so I was thinking in terms of colors and images, and that's kind of things that were familiar to me in my life with her somehow. Yeah, um, the folded $5 bills that you talk about in yeah, that book, right? Even yeah. colors, like, and I, I found this, I found the same thing happened during the pandemic, which was um, in both cases, I had gone through a period where I was just drawing in uh, ink. And I was doing like tighter and tighter drawings, a lot of cross hatching, those kinds of like really tight control drawings. And then the, this trauma happened, and then the same thing happened with, with the pandemic. And instantly I wanted loose and I wanted color. Yeah. Isn't it was that just, I just didn't want to do these like tightly things. I just crabby things. I want, I, I kind of wanted to make beauty somehow. Mm-hmm. I honestly, I can't really explain it, but I know that, so, that happened both times. The, 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 again, the, this memoir group that I work with, that's through um, Tom's school, the sequential artists workshop. Um, we have this little phrase we toss around, uh, where we say the graphic is the medicine. Um, and it's a kind of a riff on this notion of graphic medicine, um, which is a really a kind of a worldwide movement, you know, that's, that's been growing for, I don't know, a decade or more. Um, uh, what is it? The, I've never heard of that graphic. Oh, medicine. oh, you would love this. Um, so graphic medicine, it, it's a, it's take, a, to, take two pencils and call me in the morning. Yeah. yeah, No, it's a genre, but it's also a wonderful international organization. Um, and uh, you could look it up on like, I, I think it's just a uh, graphicmedicine.org. And what they are doing is um, using comics largely and a variety of approaches to the medicine, the medical world. And they are doing primarily, as I see it, there's two things. One is educational. Uh, so they use comics and illustration to help educate people about everything, you know, recently from mask wearing and vaccines to disease and um, ways to do preventative health care and things like that. Um, uh, to things like my book, which is considered a piece of graphic medicine where there's memoir or patients, um, or the family of patients talking about their experience, uh, surviving different things or coping with different things. And, and to speak generally anyways, they're finding that the communication of combining both verbal and visual, uh, between say doctors and patients in both directions, doctors are more capable or are finding it that they can achieve better communication with patients about symptoms and ways to take care of themselves. Patients are also finding, and it, it doesn't matter if you have any drawing talent. This is what I love about it. Um, if you draw how your stomach feels, you can often inadvertently convey a symptom to a medical practitioner who will look down and that will help them ask different, more interesting questions. They're getting, you know, more interesting relationships are forming. They get better diagnoses sometimes. And then also, um, you know, there's many wonderful, so many amazingly beautiful books out there uh, of people talking about caring for folks with cancer or Alzheimer's, um, their own experiences with disease and so forth, uh, that you not only learn maybe a, about a particular situation that, that you're hoping to avoid or that you're dealing with yourself, but you also can learn how you might cope with something that's happening in your own life or your own 
your own family. So it's a wonderful, rich, rich community of, of people. Um, graphicmedicine.org is how you would find them online. But um, yeah, just spectacular stuff is happening there. You would really like it, I think, because of your interest in art and healing. And that's, and, that's uh, really interesting. Yeah, I don't, yeah, I'd never heard of that before. Yeah, yeah I, I feel like I feel like what were called underground comics then became graphic novels. That whole world has dealt with psychology and trauma in a way. Less, I mean, they're they're they're. I can think of things like my cancer year, which was um, yep. You know, there was some of that, some of that, but I think, I don't know if people who are cartoonists just tend to be introverted and spend just so much time alone that they, <laughs> and they often are themselves the, the subject of their own stories just because they, I don't know, don't get out much, whatever it is, but it feels like, like psychology has often been the kind of the subject matter, but physical illness, I hadn't really thought of it as as much, yeah. yeah. Physical, like a lot of things about mental health, um, mm. really wonderful things being done um, there. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of it. And again, it's it can be clinical, or it can be memoir oriented. What happened to me, or it can be it can be the stories of what's happened to others, but that they've been part of the caretaking group or um, things like that. So and it's it's really about, rich. And there's something about the form of graphic storytelling that. That, as we were saying before, it brings you into it. It, it allows you, it doesn't talk at you. Um, right. Or it's not like a movie where you're sitting in the dark. There are times that I think, is a graphic novel kind of just a movie, that, a storyboard? But but I think it's not because you bring the movie to life. You bring the story to life when you read it, when you read a, a comic or a graphic novel. You're, you have to create the logic. Oh, now he's doing this. And now that happened. And he said this. There's so much yes. that you bring to it as a, as a reader. And one of the most interesting things I think about it as a genre indifferent from film is that you, the reader have a great control over time. So in a movie, it's just happening in front of you. Right. But when you're reading a comic, you can linger. Your eyes can move from one frame or image to another, uh, even in your peripheral vision uh, if you're looking at a spread of a book and you see, I don't know, let's just say nine different frames, you might just read them sequentially, but your eyes are bouncing. Your eyes can always see them in the context. You have the moment of the page turn when you cannot see what's happening. You can't see what's coming next, right? Uh, and so it's a little bit like reading prose in that way where you have to physically engage with the page turn, but there's also the hidden visual. Like, I don't know what's going to happen when I turn this page. And then you get to re-see kind of a new, um, and, and that, by the way, is something you can mimic very well. Uh, it helps you in depicting trauma. And frankly, if you're, even if you're doing fiction, right, you're doing a fun middle grade comic, adventure comic, you know, for young people, you always are thinking always about where's that page turn and what kind of suspense is going to propel the reader past that. But how time works and the physicality of, you know, the book, if you have it in your hand or the flipping, if you're doing it on your iPad, make is what I think really makes it different from film. That's interesting because... Yeah. I remember there's a time, I don't know if it still exists, but you could look at a graphic novel on the iPad and mm -hmm. there was a setting where it would fill the screen with 
an individual frame and then it yes. would kind of move and the next one would pop in. And I hated that. I just thought I hate it too. it's like, it's like, um, yeah. who is this? Who's this person? Who's, what is that force that's doing? That's not how I want to follow the story. It's the whole point of it. But right. it was kind of like spoon feeding me frames. And I just, I really, really disliked it. And it got you into trouble when, uh, with more complex page uh, designs where say maybe the whole page is one image, but it has inset images, right? That's been designed for your eyes to see those insets as in interrupting, but yeah. right. And it's just not going to happen that way. I would appreciate it if I'd forgotten my reading glasses, but otherwise <laughs> I, I always turn that off. And even now, just today, in fact, I was reading uh, a graphic novel and what it tends to do in the iPad is show you one page of the graphic novel at a time, which is fine but you don't get to see the spread, right? The two pages. And that I know from my own work, but that often matters a lot. And what's interesting, uh, a kiss before you go, um, when you read that on the iPad, it comes up a hundred percent in spreads. Did you know that? You probably knew that. <laughs> so the, it, I never just see one page at a time. You actually have to turn the iPad horizontally to see your book because every time it's in spreads and I was reading that recently and I thought, huh, we should do more comics this way. And I need to do more looking at the settings in my readers to see if I can set it up that way. Interesting. Uh, because, because books, most books are designed to be read that way. Like you think about what's going to propel someone from the bottom of the left page to the top of the right. And that disappears when you read page by page. Yeah. I mean, it's like uh, commercial breaks in the middle of a movie, you know, right. It's like <laughs> right. the, the director didn't necessarily intend that you would go away for three minutes right now. So yeah, right. that is, that is right. interesting. Um, did you read comics when you were younger? Is that something you came to recently? I, I did read comics when I was younger. My mother, believe it or not, was a huge comics fan. And, um, she, uh, tells the story with, with, uh, some horror that when she, I think it was when she went away to college in the fifties, she came home one day to discover her mother had thrown all her comics out. And so, um, my mom was, uh, very intent on introducing us to comics, little Lulu and Richie Rich and Andy Panda and a lot of the Disney things and Archie and of course, Charlie Brown, all those things, but she kept all my comics. Um, so I still have, almost all of, of my comics from the sixties and seventies. Yeah. Um, I was a huge, huge Batman fan as a little kid. And I still, never, am, I never so. liked superhero comics when I was no. a kid. No, the but, only ones I ever read were Batman and, and I off, to be honest, I didn't read most of those. I kind of skipped the seventies and eighties. A lot of them, I, I reconnected to Batman when uh, Frank Miller wrote the dark Knight returns, but I read a lot of, uh, you know, I guess kids comics and Archie and stuff like yeah, that. That's, that's what I remember you know, reading is kids comics. And then, then when I was about 14, I discovered crumb and I started reading underground yeah. comics and I just never really read, went back to sort of straight comics again. I just, it just seemed weird. And it's, yeah. Yep. When you're 14, 15 years old and you can read an underground comic, that's about, sex and drugs and all those kinds of things. It's like, wow. Well, I go they back. always say like, <laughs> you have to be 21 to buy them. And it was, it was very titillating and very exciting. Yeah. But I do remember the big trauma when I was 
eight or nine and I got a t- I, my allowance was 10 cents and the, com- the price of comics went from 10 cents to 12 cents. I have some of those 12 cent comics. I remember seeing that on the front cover. I know yeah, that sucked because suddenly, yeah. man, I couldn't get a comic every week. It was something like fractions. God, yeah. sound like sound really old and back then. I know. <laughs> that was during the <laughs> depression, of course. Um, yeah. So I, I do uphill both ways to the comic book store, right? Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Barefoot in the snow. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. I, I, I don't, every so often I read comics now. I don't read them that much anymore. I, I do like, I like graphic novels still, <laughs> but the individual comics, I don't know. No, I'm the same. I find that um, I was brought back to to comics as a medium in the late 80s when, you know, I discovered The Dark Knight Returns because it was this Batman thing and everybody was talking about it. So I thought, oh, I'll have a look. And that blew my mind um, about what comics could do. So this was no longer just sort of strips. This was incredibly intelligent storytelling. Um, and I was finishing my PhD at the time. And in fact, the very first scholarly presentation I ever did was about that book because I thought, oh, wait, this is worthy. This is literature now. And uh, Mouse came out at about the same time mm-hmm. and Watchmen. Um, I think Binky Brown was not too far before that. I can't remember. And then I just was, then I was in that world. But yeah. I just thought, oh, okay, this is great stuff. But it's it amazing. matured. It's amazing how kind of ordinary it is now. I mean, how mm-hmm. accepted it is. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, Mouse, I guess, is responsible for a lot of that. And Mouse won the mm-hmm. Pulitzer or whatever. So mm-hmm. um, it it really changed things. But I think Mouse has that power of, of the story that you're making your own in a way that I've never experienced any other kind of Holocaust memoir that had that feeling of being there and also temporal shifts going back and forth from the present yes. to, yep. to inside. Yeah. It's really powerful. Yeah, it's, it's a fascinating to read that book. If you've read it before, so you, you know the story and so forth, and you have the luxury of reading it again to study how he does it in particular, what you just mentioned, watching the temporal layering, which is how memory works, right? You're, you're driving through the woods now and you're remembering a story that someone told you about their memory of the horrors that occurred here. And so there's you, the other person, your memory, their memory, your imagination of what they told you all layering up in the same frame. And he draw he draws it. So, you know, exactly all that richness is there in one image and a couple of, you know, speech balloons. It's just, it's astounding to me. Yeah. And Chris Ware is really good at that too. Yes. Uh-huh. Just this thing where you go, um, you get disoriented, you don't know mm-hmm. what it is, or you notice, I mean, there's all this, there's so much detail in these things and you think, why is there all this detail? Does it, is it, does it need to be there? But then you realize like you're, it, it gives it a sense of truth, I guess. I don't know. Mm-hmm. His, his whole way of telling, of structuring the page. I mean, his design is, is impeccable. and Impeccable beautiful stuff to look at. And I'm with you. I puzzle over his pages often. Um, and I enjoy it. Right. And then I figure, well, that's the experience he's creating for me. And, and then I feel like I'm in the hands of a master, right? Because 
I always think that, you know, when you're creating something, I'm sure you know this from all your books that, that part of what you're doing is not just getting out of you what you want to get out, but you're, you know, you want to create a particular experience for the person who's coming to your book. That's how we, that's how we inspire people to act, right? That's how you've moved so many people to, to start to draw. You're creating this experience, um, you know, where people feel like, oh, I can try it. It's worth the risk of picking up the pen and outlining the bottles in the medicine cabinet, which by the way, is the first thing I did, um, which I remember right after that book came out and, uh, and looking down and going, well, son of a gun, that's kind of interesting looking. Like I wasn't trying to draw the bottles the way they're supposed to look. Right. Um, I do want to say, by the way, just so I can say it, that, uh, the creative license changed my life. I truly am sitting here talking to you now because of that book. Uh, so thank you. Um, yeah, thank you. No, that's, that's yeah. nice to hear. Yeah. Um, so, so, yeah. so do you, do you think that you're going to, are you going to go back to writing mystery novels or are you going to write more? Uh, in Comics. This way? Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm sold. Um, you know, prose is terrific. I would never say a bad thing about it. And I absolutely encourage people to, write in prose. And I still coach some people who are writing in prose. I don't teach anymore. I retired early uh, in 2019. I don't teach full time. I do teach uh, now privately and with, with sequential artists workshop and such. But um, for me, the incredible richness of working in comics with the visual and the verbal in tandem just experiencing what it it does to me in the creative process uh, is so rich that I I can't imagine going back, at least not for a long project. You know, I would write articles and essays or things like that, but um, I can't imagine at this right now doing another big book project without illustrating it. It's a lot of work. Yeah. Oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot of work, but it was really fun. Like I never had that level of fun when I was working in prose. And, and maybe that's because, you know, I was a writer my whole life. Like I was writing when I was five and six years old. And so it was always like writing and writing was very important. And it was art with a capital A and I needed to be really good at a particular level. And to this day, every single thing I draw fills me with delight because I couldn't draw, right? That was my identity. I can't draw mm. until I was in my late thirties. I can't draw. So, you know, when I drew the outlines of the bottle in the medicine chest and looked down, I thought, well, that's cool. Right. So it doesn't matter to me ever if a drawing is really, if a drawing is good or bad, I'm just filled with delight every time I draw everything. <laughs> Cause it still seems like such a miracle to me. It's so no, yeah. that's, that's, that's really nice. And, uh, I hope you continue to get that kind of pleasure out of drawing. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Me too. Uh, Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Um, I've, I've done, I, I did a fairly long sort of story, like a short graphic, short story, I guess it was like 20 mm -hmm. pages or something like that. Oh, it was a lot of work. And it's also like the drawing the same character over and over again from different angles and, oh God. That was yeah. a I really, I really, I think I probably drew myself 20,000 times, right. For this book. I don't know how many, but a lot of times. Yeah. And I, I think too, that the, the hardest part, I think the hardest part is the writing. 
uh, and I don't mean actually the words that you will use, but I mean the construction of the story. Um, it's hard work to construct a story that's going to engage readers, um, that has some sort of structure. It doesn't have to be the classic story structure, but some sort of structure that's going to hold it together and, um, you know, timing and pacing and characterization and dialogue and plot or structure, all those things. And then to figure out how you're going to draw them as well. It's, it's hard work. Um, I know again, with the, the comic artists that I work with, uh, mostly in memoir, uh, many of them can draw beautifully. Oh, so much better than, than I will ever be able to draw. I mean, beautiful, beautiful visual artists and they work hard. I mean, they struggle. We all do to, to put it together in a story because a bunch of beautiful pieces of art will not compel someone to read if there is no story. They'll look at it um, if it's a different kind of book, but you, the story needs to to compel people, you know, pull people in, invite them in and keep them reading. So it's hard work. Yeah, I know uh, a guy who did a, a graphic novel that was a huge bestseller. It was a really big deal. And then he did a small book and then he did, start to work on his next big graphic novel. It's sort of like, you know, six inch thick kind of graphic novel. Mm. And he worked on it for a really long time. And then he decided that he didn't like the medium that he'd been working in. And he decided like, I think he had to redraw the whole thing in pencil. He did something insane and went back and redrew the entire thing again. And then when it finally came out and it had a beautiful cover, it was just a beautiful book, beautiful book. It was absolutely tedious. It was so overthought and I've just, it wasn't compelling. It was just so crafted, Mm. but, and I think it took him six or seven years. Mm -hmm. God, it's so much work to put into this. And then, but I think it's probably very, very difficult to edit somebody else's graphic novel because it's not like you just can red pencil a few things. There's so so much work went into every aspect of it. And, and in some cases you don't really know what it's going to be until it's really kind of come together and all the drawing has been done. So it's, right. it's a, it's a really difficult medium, I think to, to produce. And, and if you think about it, you know, when you make a graphic novel, you're the writer, you're the director, you're the actors, you're the, you know, putting in the music, you're doing every aspect of producing a movie, but it's just you doing it all. Yes. Uh, you know, you brought up one of the things that that I think maybe I had because of my background in prose, which was I knew, I know myself to be someone who iterates. I write a whole thing, the whole thing through, and then I, because that's the only reason I can, way I can figure out what it is I'm trying to do anyway. And then I do it again and again and again. And so I knew that I needed to figure out how to do this with a graphic piece and keep it flexible and semi-fast so that I could fix things. And it took me a very long time and a lot of advice from people smarter than me to figure out how to do that. And so this book, the first draft of this book exists entirely in pencil on three by five cards, um, where each three by five card was a page and it forced me to move fast, to stay very, very general about what my page layout was going to look like, what the, and then I would make notes on the back, what I thought the dialogue might be, or what at least I thought the action 
points were going to be so that I could work the whole way through in order to go, yeah, most of that is not going to work and toss it. But I didn't have, I did a 350 page first draft in six weeks that way. And so it enabled me to say, oh, big chunks of this aren't going to work because I didn't have hundreds of hours invested in art. Right. right? Um, So I, again, one of the things that, that I work with, with uh, students and other colleagues and stuff is this notion of how do we keep it as flexible as possible as you iterate um, until you're sure you've got what you want um, words or mostly what you want anyways, and then do um, more finished art. And then depending on whether you're going to print it yourself or whether you're going to try to, to sell it to someone to publish, how much art do you actually invest time in doing before you go to editing? I was, uh, I did my entire book in Procreate, uh, the final version really? of it in Procreate on the iPad. Yeah. But I did all the early versions, uh, kind of the first two versions were by hand. Um, I write the same way when I write prose. I always have to do my first versions by hand. I have to see my hand on paper. I have to see my own handwriting. I can't type. Um, and then there's a point where I can shift and do editing and so forth. But every now and then when I get stuck, I'd get stuck drawing. I'd have to put away the iPad and pull out a sketchbook and draw on paper. It just jogs something loose. But yes, all this work was in Procreate, which made it extremely editable. So that when, yeah. it, you know, my, I mean, yeah, I've tried drawing comics in Procreate because it seems like you should be able to draw comics because the colors are comic, comic kind of colors. And there's so many great pens and stuff like that that you can mm-hmm. use for, for comic drawing. But I always found it. I just get really fiddling with it. Mm-hmm. Procreate can make me very fiddly. All digital mm-hmm. media can, cause you can undo things. So I tend to just draw it with a brush and I don't know, not that I'm, pretending to be a graphic novelist, but still. Well, yeah. No. Good. Well, th- well, thanks. Thanks for chatting with me today. And for, uh, yeah. I think, I think I learned a lot about your book, but also about trauma and it wasn't traumatic. So thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. And thank you for the work you do in the world. I think it matters. Thank you. That was a great chat. Beth is an interesting person who thinks about so many aspects of the creative process. And I feel like she gained a lot of wisdom from this experience that she went through. It's also fascinating to see how she's translated that story into a really a structure and a form that I've never seen before. This idea of telling a story and then retelling it and telling it again and seeing how it changes and what that reveals about our experience. It's uh, it's pretty fascinating to me. I really enjoyed her graphic novel. And uh, if you'd like to find out more about it, I'm going to put information about it in the notes for this episode. So you can follow up with Beth and get your hands on her book. Thanks very much for joining me in this chat. I'll see you again next week with another interesting conversation. This is Danny Gregory saying bye-bye. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. And remember, visit sketchbookschool.com and claim your free ebook and your monthly newsletter. Our community is always growing and we'd love for you to be a part of it. 
Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Art for All.